Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your Pontificator-in-Chief, Jonathan Cole. That's right, the Pontificator-in-Chief is back, and you'll know what I'm talking about if you're a long-time listener. I'm Assistant Director at the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University, and I'm a scholar of political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. Now, in this little uh, episode, which is a monologue, I thought I had kicked that habit, but... I suppose all addicts are allowed a relapse from time to time without great shame on our journey to sobriety. So there is no guest unless you consider Jonathan Cole to be the guest, which I kind of am. And I realize as these words are coming out of my mouth that once again, I am tying myself in knots to explain what should otherwise be very straightforward, which is that I'm not tackling this issue of Afghanistan. I don't think I need to rehearse why I would be talking about Afghanistan. We've all seen the shocking images of the utter tragedy and debacle of the end of a 20-year mission to try and get rid of al-Qaeda, dismiss the Taliban from Afghanistan and create some kind of Western democratic utopia. It was always a crazy idea, but I'm jumping ahead of myself. What I wanted to say was that the reason I am doing... Uh, this short little episode, which breaks into my normal transmission of having guests, is not because I'm an expert in political theology, although that would seem to be prima facie quite apt to the situation, given the Taliban is, a, if nothing else, a kind of religious or religio-political movement, a form of political Islam, and we could certainly analyze Afghanistan from that perspective. No, what you might not be aware of is that I actually had a career as an intelligence analyst prior to becoming a, an academic, a political theologian, and a podcaster extraordinaire. And as fate would have it, one of the countries I had in my remit was actually Afghanistan. In fact, I went there in 2011 and spent a couple of days in Kabul, and I might share one or two anecdotes from that experience because it was quite an experience. So... Just to flesh out a little bit the whole intelligence Afghanistan thing, let me just say that from 2007 until 2014, I worked in the intelligence business for the Australian government. I began my intelligence career at what was then known as the Defence Signals Directorate. It's now the Australian Signals Directorate. That's one of the really sexy collection agencies that collects through clandestine means all kinds of interesting, interesting communications. Uh, It's an amazing place to work. I enjoyed and loved every single day of it. But alas, I really can't talk about that job at all. Or as the proverbial cliche would go, I'd have to track each and every one of you listeners down and kill you and your entire families. That's probably a really bad (laughs) joke to make. Uh, You know what I mean. I should probably avoid cliches altogether. Uh, In any event, I then worked as a senior terrorism analyst at what was then the Office of National Assessments. It's now called the Office of National Intelligence. And amongst other things, I covered all of terrorism in South Asia, which included Afghanistan. Now, that job naturally, which I did between 2010 and 2014, so a good four and a half year chunk out of the 20 year mission in Afghanistan. And that's what led me to travel to Afghanistan and to Pakistan on multiple occasions and other weird and interesting parts of the world. That experience, apart from giving me access, obviously, to all of the intelligence available to the Australian government on Afghanistan, I worked closely with Afghanistan analysts working on the politics, the Taliban, the insurgency, every facet. I've traveled all over the world. I've discussed Afghanistan at conferences from Ottawa in Canada to Wellington in New Zealand, multiple trips to Langley, Virginia, if you know what I'm talking about, Denmark, Germany, uh, Spain, uh, like I said, Pakistan, the UK, you name it. I've heard the, I heard and was privy to the perspective of NATO and all of the countries involved in Afghanistan, not to mention my trip to Afghanistan where with a uh, nerdy analytical colleague, um, and I'm a nerd too, so the, I'm saying we're two nerds that went to Kabul and we traveled around, had all kinds of meeting with, meetings with Afghan officials, government officials, intelligence officers, uh, Western people, intelligence officers involved in Afghanistan. 
So that's all a way of saying that actually this issue is quite close uh, to heart. I worked on this country. I went there um, during this mission quite a few years before it ended in the tragic debacle that I referred to um, earlier. So this is not to say that I'm the world's expert on Afghanistan. Um, I'm not, but I was involved in the mission in a kind of sense if you like and so i have some ideas about it because i have very strong views on international relations it's long been a point of interest for me and so i i wanted to avoid this this topic uh but i was having a bath <laughs> as it happens just a little while back and the idea just solidified and i was forced to do it so here i am so where to begin let me begin with my assessment of the situation. Now, it goes without saying that the actual withdrawal was uh, a completely avoidable farce. That is the way that the Biden administration executed the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I actually think the withdrawal was the correct decision about 20 years too late. I'll get to that in a second. But talk about a guidebook on how to stuff up withdrawing from a 20-year-old mission like this. It, there was no reason for it to be as catastrophic as it was leading to the ignominy of this withdrawal. I mean, telegraphing the fact you're leaving well ahead of time, signaling to, signaling to the Taliban that they just need to start preparing and getting ready, and also telling the every Afghan soldier, government soldier that is, and every official in the Afghanistan regime that they... <laughs> really have nothing to fight for from this point on to the woeful preparations and the fact that they really did not put in anything in place to facilitate the exit of all of those uh, western civilians who wanted to get out not to mention uh, the outrageous moral failing not just of the US government and maybe this is more of an Australian government thing but to to leave until literally not even the 11th hour, like the 13th hour, if there was a 13th hour on the clock, which is to say when it's too late to get all the interpreters and other Afghans, Afghanis who had helped the Australian mission, like take it from the scenes I've seen, whether it's the French or the, the Brits or Americans, maybe the Canadians are in the same same boat, I don't, I don't know. But clearly we did not facilitate the exit or did not even have the plans in place really to facilitate the exit of all those Afghanis that are great risk to their personal lives and livelihoods and that of their families um, to put measures in place to facilitate their exit in a timely fashion rather than forcing them at great risk to try and get out and the terrible images and and really tactical failure of having to send American troops back in just to secure the airport and the incredible scenes we've, we've seen the reminiscent of 9-11 of uh, sort of people falling off airplanes I mean you, if you wrote that in the plot of a Hollywood movie the studio execs would just tell the person proposing that to get out and stop wasting their time with such ridiculous uh, plot lines now let me just expand a little bit on why I say it actually was the right decision to get out, albeit executed in an appallingly negligent and derelict fashion. Uh, and at this point I might sort of talk a little bit about my visit to Kabul in 2011 because in a way that illustrates the problem. Or to put, put it differently, I came away from, what was the great lesson I came away from that, that short trip to Kabul? It was really a pessimism about the prospects of this mission succeeding. Why do I, I say that? Well, at that time, as it was until yesterday, Kabul was really the one and only place that Western officials could, in inverted commas, safely visit. The rest of the country was either in Taliban hands or even if it was in government con control, which was usually sort of small urban centers, not the rural surrounding and you've got to understand that Afghanistan is primarily a rural country something like 70% 75% of the population uh, are rural it's not a highly urbanized um, country was that um, if, if the if the 
land or the city wasn't in the control of the Taliban. It was under threat. That is, insurgents roam freely through the province. And so even in the the provincial centre like Tarankout, where the Australian troops were in a Ruzgan province, there was some risk, you know, because there were Taliban insurgents roaming through the province that could access Tarankout. It's not like it was a place that you could just set up a hotel and tourists could come and visit. So I realised there was a problem when I got off the plane with my mate and of course the first thing we do is hook up with the Australian Close Personal Protection Unit because basically no Western official goes even to Kabul back then and it was that was the case right throughout the 20 years as I understand it without close personal close personal protection and so we're in a two jeep convoy which I think is pretty standard armor plated jeeps uh, we walk out of the airport to the place where we have our instructions tell us to go we get in there's a couple of Aussie blokes in the jeep both with assault rifles slung between their legs they give us a security briefing we put on our uh, armor jackets and helmet and the guy starts running through the the procedure and he says look basically we're in a two vehicle convoy if uh, the proverbial goes down uh, our do not get out of the vehicle unless we tell you to uh, follow our instructions if our vehicle is disabled we will make our way to the second vehicle but again do not get out of the vehicle until we tell you to our exclusive focus is to protect you and then he put the absolute fear of God in the two nerdy analysts when he then pointed to a little satchel between our legs and said, there's a first aid kit there, feel free to use it if you need to. And vroom vroom, away we went. Now, of course, this is this city that we have liberated from the Taliban and it's so bloody dangerous <laughs> that you have to meet up with an armed convoy when you're visiting as an Australian official. And like I say, I'm sure it's the same for everywhere else. And uh, these guys with their assault rifles are walking through the procedure of how we're going to get out alive, I guess, should the Taliban attack us or an IED go off or whatever. Now, the thing was, we, <laughs> for our entire trip in Afghanistan, we literally could not move without close personal protection. And that was the case for every single uh, diplomat working there. Now, we did meet some aid workers on the first day there and they don't travel around like like that because it turns out that aid workers have have big kahunas unlike um, government officials although maybe there's a school of thought that government officials are a sort of higher value target because if you can kidnap a government official um, uh, you know the propaganda value perhaps is is greater um, and I should just say that this is a bit of an, an aside because I've, I've got a lot of anecdotes and so I'm going to interrupt myself a lot. But one thing, I've, I've traveled extensively through the Muslim world and it is, the fascinating thing is that it is a whole bunch of con contradictions and paradoxes that you um, just wouldn't believe. And so <laughs> as we were, I think in Dubai, waiting for our flight to Kabul uh, on, I think it's called Ariana Airlines. I can't remember exactly whatever the national Afghan Afghan, Afghanistan carrier is uh, our contact at the Australian Embassy asks us to buy some grog and bring it in to Kabul which just sounds like a ridiculous thing to do this is the the capital that was the seat of the government of the Islamic Emirate just 10 years before and as of a few days or weeks or months depending when you're listening to this is once again the capital of what presumably will become again the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan or something similar. So uh, to say that this made me nervous would be an understatement because they ju they're just telling us, oh, look, it'll be fine. Just just whack it in your bag, whack a few bo bottles of wine in your bag and, and waltz through customs and immigration. And uh, I was extremely nervous, so I convinced my nerdy friend to put it in his carry-on luggage. And sure enough, we arrived at the airport in Kabul, uh, now called Hamid Karzai, which sounds like a sick joke if you know anything about Hamid Karzai. Uh, and his role in the path to the extreme rotten corruption that brought down this, this uh, paper thin government. Uh, sure enough, we just waltzed through immigration and um, 
customs with a couple of bottles of red wine and then met up with our close personal protection. Our first meeting, which was that evening, was with some aid workers at a Lebanese restaurant that actually got bombed, believe it or not, about a year after we had um, been there and killed a few people uh, as well. And we were told to bring the wine along as a way of buttering up the aid workers. So, I mean, just think about it. Here we are in Kabul. We've got a couple of bottles of wine. Our armed escort is sitting outside the restaurant effectively guarding it so that we can have this conversation with the aid workers and we discreetly hand over with a bit of embarrassment the bottles of wine to the waiter and they do something that they do often in the more conservative parts of the Muslim world which is they basically poured the wine into a um, sort of kettle well, not a kettle that you know the thing you pour tea in and it was sort of poured into tea glasses and we all went through this pretense of drinking tea that was actually red wine and i stress again in kabul and my mate and i we stayed at this hotel um which was exclusively contracted to the australian government so really it was just i guess effectively owned by the australian government but it was like a real hotel like we checked in and we checked out got our keys but my mate and i were the only people staying there it would have had beds for maybe 50 60 had this empty swimming pool it was such a surreal experience uh and when we woke up the next day i mean it's pretty eerie when you're the only two blokes staying in a hotel in in kabul surrounded by barbed wire and armed guards both uh they were (laughs) this is really weird but we had um gurkhas which is i think the nepalese colonial era sort of special forces that i guess had some deal with the australian government were providing security around the um perimeter but like i say the whole whole thing's a bunch of strange paradoxes uh the next morning when we had our breakfast it became clear that this was actually the sort of command and control center of the close um protection unit who are mainly um australian adf veterans who had become contractors there there was sort of one contractor it was probably started by some enterprising Australian entrepreneur who left the military or special forces and set up this business. They did all the close personal protection for DFAT in uh, both Baghdad and Kabul at that time, which were the two places it was needed throughout that era. And I imagine still is probably in Baghdad. I think Australia's still got an embassy there. And so the next morning... Again, the two nerdy boys, we rock up to the the mess center. I stress again, we're the only two guests. And of course, the tradition at the Office of National Assessments was to always dress snappy in a full suit. So, you know, everywhere we are in Afghanistan, we're we're dressed. And it must, just looking back, must have looked so ridiculous. We're in in full suit with tie, helmet, uh, body armor. So we rock up at the mess center. We're dressed in our suits because we're about to go to our first meeting. And it's full of like 20 blokes, absolutely shredded, six packs, look like they could bench press each of us. And every single guy has a sidearm. We're like the only people there who are unarmed. And it's all, g'day, mate, how you going? You know, I've never felt um, (laughs) more unmanly in my life. In any event, that's a fairly long anecdote to say it was very obvious to me that given the threat level in the capital of this purported democracy that we were establishing in this place where al-Qaeda and the Taliban had been defeated was an absolute lie. Like we couldn't go anywhere. The, the security was kind of stultifying. And I thought to myself, what has happened over the last 10 years? I mean, there's there was a raging insurgency at the time. The Taliban were anything but defeated. Um, Al-Qaeda had largely been kicked out, but they still had connections into the area. It was still operating pretty freely across the AFPAC border region, in particularly a couple of uh, provinces where, which are predominantly Salafi, so al-Qaeda, although diminished, is, has not exited the, the field, if you like. And in any event, it was sort of shortly after uh, that, or may, may have even been at the same time, actually, that the Arab Spring was raging and al-Qaeda started to get its 
second wing and I, I have to confess I came out of that and realized not just from that one experience that in a way is just emblematic of the four years I spent analyzing the situation and really going back to 2007 where I was viewing the intelligence and at the time I was working at the Australian Signals Directorate Australia had a kind of reconstruction task force in the Ruskan province which was sort of aimed I guess at building stuff to try and help in the nation building part of the equation I basically concluded several things one the Taliban can't be defeated that was patently obvious and so whatever the endpoint of the Afghanistan mission was it was going to involve the Taliban either running whole provinces which is to say a part of the country or as perhaps a political party in the government maybe the government or part of a power sharing arrangement it was clear that they could not be defeated and that's because I think there's a bit of a myth that has arisen around the Afghanistan which is all about the fact that it was created in Pakistan as it happens just as another aside I one of the most interesting trips I've ever done anywhere in the world was to the little town of Deoband in Uttar Pradesh in India which I think I did the year before my trip to Kabul in 2010 and that's where they have a very very famous madrasa founded in the 19th century called the Darul Ulum and that is the spiritual home of the of Darabandi Islam which is the kind of underlying uh, theological school that animated the Taliban movement and and again I went there with a, a sort of another white Anglo boy dressed in a suit like me <laughs> he was the second or third secretary at the High Commission in Delhi Australian High Commission and we went down with a young uh, Indian kid that was working as a, an interpreter for the High Commission and that was quite an extraordinary uh, adventure we went and spent a day down there eating and mingling with the um, powers that be at this madrasa not a lot of Western people get to go visit it was quite a coup that we actually even got that but that, I digress back to Afghanistan this myth arose that it was a sort of wholly created and known subsidiary of Pakistani intelligence and look there's no doubt that Pakistani intelligence played a big role in the formation of the Taliban and its formative years but we're kidding ourselves if we think somehow it's a foreign entity I mean the Afghanistan leadership were Afghans sons of the soil as they would probably say and the bulk of the fighters were Afghans and those who weren't Af Afghans were predominantly Pashtuns from the western part of Pakistan which is to say people who speak the same language and have the same culture because one of these great moves that we saw right throughout the colonial period where we stick a border right through the middle of a, a national people that occurred between Afghanistan and Pakistan and on one of my trips to Pakistan as it happened, it kind of sounds funny to say out loud, we actually went from Islamabad and did a day trip down to Peshawar, which is the the sort of main city in the Pashtun-speaking uh, province. And we, we went down escorted by the Pakistani intelligence, the very people that are said to have created the Taliban. And we were down there talking about terrorism and the the fight that was raging in the Pakistani tribal areas by the same uh, Pashtuns who had an allegiance really to the sort of um, idea of a Pashtunistan and the sort of Islamic tribal culture that they have that spills over both parts of the border. What am I saying? I'm saying that whenever you intervene in a conflict where the insurgents are actually from the nation you are trying to pacify, you have a problem because unless you're willing to literally commit genocide and exterminate the entire ethnic population that insurgency its organization its leaders its fighters are going to have to have a place when you think about it in whatever kind of political settlement there is and this is one of several reasons why i think it is misguided and actually a kind of moral evil born of hubris and ignorance to actually invade countries with a view to trying to 
recreate their political institutions in a way that suits you but is utterly alien to the indigenous culture. So am I surprised that the Taliban are back in power? No, I'm not, because in a way that is the natural order of things if we don't interfere. Now, do I like the Taliban? No, I don't. I think they're abhorrent, ghastly, brutal. I don't want to see anyone live under the Taliban. But the question is, it's twofold really. Do we have any moral obligation as Western nations, governments, militaries, citizens that vote for our national governments in places like the US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and the like European countries, are we under any particular moral obligation to militarily, I emphasize that word, militarily intervene in to countries where the regime is odious or to intervene in a country where there is a civil conflict underway that was a state in Afghanistan. And we, we should be real here. When we first went in, we sided with the Northern Alliance, which is to say various uh, ethnic militia, Uzbek militias, Tajik militias, because Afghanistan is a polyethnic nation. The majority of Pashtun, which is the ethnic group that the out of which the Taliban emerged, but they have a Tajik and Uzbek minority. And so there was an ethnic dimension to the conflict. They're all Muslims of one sort or another, although there are some Muslim minorities like the Hazara, which are Shia. It's a predominantly Sunni country, even across those major ethnic groups of Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Pashtuns. But there was a civil war going on. The Taliban did not actually control the entire country. They controlled the majority of the country and so one reason that we were we were one reason why the initial u.s intervention was so effective was that they were able to team up with the uzbek and tajik mujahideen on the ground and by providing them air support logistics and intelligence support um, they were able to help them actually swing the tide of the, the conflict because i mean american air power once you put that in the hands of a a militia, even even one that is outgunned in the context of an insurgency, it's pretty easy for them to prevail. And we we also should be real. If you read the testimony of um, former CIA, CIA officers, and there's some good books on this. I can't remember the authors. I mean, th these guys were roaming around with uh, suitcases full of hundreds of thousands of US dollars, and they were pretty much just buying off the <laughs> various alliances. And um, I'll never forget one anecdote I read in this one book i wish i could remember the name of the author but he, he was a kind of liaison working with one of the factions of the northern alliance and i can't remember who it was and this northern alliance was negotiating with the taliban unit uh that he was confronting in that particular area of operations across the the front line and he was trying to do a deal to basically buy that taliban faction to come over to the Northern Alliance and with CIA um, funneled money. This is how this kind of business works all over the world. And it's one reason why it was always a fantasy that somehow these democratic institutions, civil institutions could be created in Afghanistan in a tribal environment where religion is the dominant kind of worldview and frame of reference, where there are deep ethnic tensions and where loyalty is is basically bought it's not <laughs> it really isn't this concept of afghanistan um in any event i digress back to the the anecdote which of course is not mine but it's a fascinating one cia officers on the ground obviously he's, he's working with the northern alliance guys and he's informed that they've done a deal but then he hears all this shooting and he's like uh when the taliban faction ultimately came and they didn't surrender but they joined up he wanted to know what on earth was going they said oh we were just shooting all our arabs in other words once they bought the loyalty of this taliban faction they basically just executed all the foreign troops namely the al-qaeda types that were fighting alongside them now all of this is just by way of of saying how utterly delusional it is to go into a country that you do not understand at all and to think somehow you're just going to transport and transplant a system of government that evolved 
for centuries in the United States with much bloodshed, an entire civil war, the whole problem of slavery. It's not like the Americans snapped their fingers and democracy suddenly flourished and emerged. It was a highly iterative and evolutionary process that had lots of twists and, and turns. And to think that you can just come into a country that has no tradition of this, no knowledge, no understanding, no one's even demanding it. Sure, people, or not everyone, but but uh, certain people wanted to be free of the Taliban. But being wanting to be free or free from the yoke of the Taliban is not the same thing as wanting a sort of separation of powers and parliamentary committees and these this particular uh, way of structuring the the civil uh, service. Um, this was also a bit of a problem in, in Iraq, although it's a, a little different there. So the, the first problem is it does not work when you try to transplant and transport to graft on a system of government. If you think about a body, when you try and graft skin, if it's not done correctly, the body rejects it. And I think that's exactly what has happened in Afghanistan. And it's a tragedy that this was driven by delusion because this is not rocket science if you know anything about these cultures if you know anything about history this almost never ever works and there's an interesting parallel here and that is uh, or an interesting case study and that is south korea you see when the united states military first set up the regime in south korea in 1948 when north and south korea were uh, formally created after the Japanese were, were kicked out, um, it began effectively as a military dictatorship. Now, this is interesting because the, the US government did not set out, probably wisely in hindsight, because the history of the Korean Peninsula was one of kind of absolute um, monarchy, uh, kind of just to put it in sort of basic Western terms. There was no tradition of um, democracy there before the Japanese went in. It was what we would call some kind of authoritarian um, system. They had an elite. It was highly um, hierarchical, uh, class-based society. These were the kind of uh, norms that were in Korean society before the creation of the Republic of South Korea. And to cut that long story short, um, South Korea rem remains authoritarian right up until the 1990s and it's then that driven by its own people it develops what i would say organically and naturally into a democracy and because it evolved into a democracy that way that is the americans didn't just try and dictate from the first second that you must have a democracy and it must look like the american <laughs> democracy of course because they didn't pursue that strategy and they effectively just let the Koreans govern themselves, and it turned out to be authoritarian, which had been their their norm up until that point. Much later, when it did become a, a democracy, it became a democracy in a way that the people owned and supported, and it seems to have worked really well. I mean, South Korea's have been there as well on my intelligence journeys, um, funny enough. But uh, talking terrorism and Afghanistan there too. But uh, that is a good example. You know, if you like, it's a juxtaposition between invading a country, and no one likes an invader, and trying to set up a system by fiat versus liberating a country, in this case, liberating them from the Japanese, and being patient enough and tolerant enough to allow them to sort out their own domestic policy through their own journey. Now, of course, sometimes that means the polity is going to end up something that we don't want like something that's going to bring tears to the eyes of the human rights crowd but we're talking not just about morality here but effectiveness because when you look at the international arena you can't just deal with the abstract ideal you have to deal with reality which is why i'm firmly in the camp of the realist school of international uh, relations and if i can just stay on this point of effectiveness because I think one thing that understandably, reasonably makes, gives people pause or makes people circumspect, skeptical or uncomfortable with the idea of realism, that is the fact that there are certain 
things about other nations and about the international order that are beyond our control and that we cannot change and therefore we have to work within the reality of the facts as they present themselves to us is that it feels callous and this is tough it's not easy there is no pleasure in being a realist let me let me tell you i don't i'm not a realist out of glee this is not some ideological thing it's with a heavy heart and and with reluctance that's because none of us these days can be blind to the suffering of other people because everything is captured in footage nowadays you can read the history we hear the suffering directly from from people interviewed on the ground or those with relatives or those who who have suffered you know horrific things we've been hearing these testimonies since the the holocaust so the problem is you have to hold this realist position in the face of knowing uh, and being able, not being able to really avoid by sticking your head in the sand the fact that people suffer. But I come back to the fact of what our moral obligation is, but more to the point, because I think what, what needs to guide the moral question is the reality of what can and can't be achieved. One of the reasons I'm a realist, and I think interventions designed to um, protect people out of a human rights concern or even worse for nation building uh, purposes usually as a way of sort of helping people to prosper and flourish the reason why i am deeply deeply skeptical and i think it is a bad idea and it can border on a kind of evil is just that the historical record and the afghanistan debacle is but the latest illustration and example of this is that they just do not work now, when I, we need to be clear here. When I say they do not work, this is not like, you know, I built a machine that just didn't work. When I say it doesn't work, that means tens of thousands of people die and trillions of dollars are spent for something that does not work. That's why I say it can border on a moral evil when there's a level of delusion and ignorance underlying the decision and the rationale for going in. I'm not, I'm not just talking about the Western troops, the two and a half thousand Americans and every nation that fought there has lost people but like a hundred times that many Afghans die or if it's in another country it's usually a hundredfold of the the locals die I mean I think as a general principle Western countries should never intervene in civil conflicts because to intervene in a civil conflict means you've effectively got to take a side and then you own the problem it's, uh, you know, Powell famously said, the, the one guy that had a lot of wisdom before they went into Iraq, but his whole career was destroyed by that, that pathetic display that the Bush government made him do in front of the UN with the stupid intelligence about uh, you know, mobile weapons of mass, mass destruction um, uh, capabilities in Iraq. When he said, you know, you break it, you own it. And that's true. If you intervene in a civil war, and you allow one side to win, then you own the problem. But I mean, what's the moral basis for intervening in a civil conflict that is not of your making? But then you make the problem of your making. This is why I actually think Obama, the best thing Obama did in foreign policy, um, apart from kill tens of thousands of jihadists, and to my Republican listeners, this is one of the (laughs) the fascinating... uh, paradoxes of the obama regime was he could not utter the word islam and terrorism in the same sentence uh and yet meanwhile he was an absolute jihadist killer this was the guy that authorized the first execution extrajudicial execution of american citizens um who were fighting with al-qaeda this is the guy that authorized signature strikes a morally unconscionable activity that to his credit he eventually got rid of which was basically dropping a a drone on a bunch of men with weapons uh, without any other evidence in the AFPAC region. The problem is they everyone's got an an AK-47 in the AFPAC region and they like to fire them at weddings and so these signature signature strikes just killed dozens and dozens and dozens probably hundreds of innocent people. Uh, They were dropping drones on jihadists who were sleeping in their house with their wives and children killing them all. I mean the great irony is that George Bush, because of his buddy-buddy friendship with the 
Pakistani dictator Musharraf um, was far too deferential to the Pakistani needs because one of the things you've got to understand about the Pakistanis, one of the great frustrations in the counterterrorism effort was that every time they tried to round up an al-Qaeda fighter who was hiding out in Pakistan and do it properly through the proper channels of coordinating with Pakistani intelligence, the guy magically flew out the window hours before the the um, the forces arrived to capture them. So Obama, who came in with owing nothing to Musharraf, just said, screw that, and he started doing drone strikes all over parts of Pakistan, whether the uh, Pakistanis liked it or not, not to mention the uh, whole operation to kill bin Laden, which was an extremely, I'm going to say, a ballsy thing to do. I mean, just think about this. You're sending special forces into what is notionally an allied country without telling them. And, uh, I mean, that could have been catastrophic if they, the SEAL team ended up in a shootout with Pakistani soldiers, killed a dozen of them, and maybe a couple of the Americans got captured. I mean, that just would have been insane um that's not to say i like obama per se um i find him uh quite detestable on a whole range of other issues but uh his rhetoric was was nothing was not did not reflect the actuality of what he was doing in in the background and that guy's killed more jihadists than any, any other u.s president before or since now i managed to digress myself so much i don't know where i was but i think i can get back because the whole point is that when we are thinking about the international arena through a moral lens, which is the lens that we should use, this is an area of agency where the decisions we take are very consequential for the lives often of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And this is, this is one of the principles of just war theory, actually, is the sort of prospects of success. There is nothing just Let's take North Korea. I mean, if intervening on the basis of human rights, on the basis of liberating people from oppression, on the basis of removing odious regimes, then there is no better candidate than North Korea. But let's talk about the prospects of success. To remove Kim Jong-un, that fat little guy in Pyongyang, from power, would entail a full-scale invasion that I reckon would kill at least 100,000 American troops, uh, may kill up to a million North Koreans, uh, may, may kill a couple of hundred thousand US troops, uh, is likely to kill hundreds of thousands of South Koreans because um, Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is actually quite close to the North Korean border and it's well within range of artillery and, and rockets. There's some theories that the uh, within sort of minutes of a conventional conflict beginning, the North Koreans could, could virtually flatten Seoul, which is a megapolis with millions of people. Fantastic city, by the way. Awesome food. You should try Korean barbecue there sometime. Um, but of course, I think it would be morally unconscionable for an American president to embark on a full-scale invasion of North Korea there's no guarantee you would actually remove the regime. And even if you manage to conquer it, notwithstanding all of the massive suffering you're causing, and as odious as North Korea looks to us, it's not a war zone at the moment. People are living sort of ordered lives, if I could put it like that. Now, of course, it sounds weird to say because in our minds, they're benighted and oppressed and and they are but i mean they're able to live raise children work i'm not saying it's a great life but it's certainly better than it is for people living in frontline towns and cities in syria where you know you're trying to raise a family and the thing you've got to worry about is um a shell landing and obliterating your your baby i know i'm putting it in evocative terms but the point is just because it would be a morally good outcome if the status quo were changed doesn't mean that a military intervention is morally right if it has low to no prospects of succeeding because an invasion is a form of warfare you what you do know unlike the outcome is that it will definitely kill a lot of people and this brings me back to afghanistan because i do want to wrap this up
And so I think actually it was right to go in and work with the Northern Alliance with a very limited objective. This is in 2001, late 2001, when the Americans first went in. I think the use of air power, special forces, I'm in favor of this kind of intervention. The kind that actually worked in Serbia, both to end the Bosnian War and Kosovo. And there, what Clinton did right was to avoid an invasion. And I think there were people suggesting in his ear that that may have been necessary. What he did was he used air power and yes, that involved killing people. That's what military intervention does. He used air power and did not go further and never intended, I think, to go further, which brought the Serbs to the table, which brought about the outcome of the peace settlement in Bosnia, which has still held to this day. And again, in a second operation, did the same thing with Kosovo, which ended the, the genocide. That is the kind of limited military intervention that can work. And that is exactly what the mission in Afghanistan was. And if Bush had have got out at week four, after the Taliban regime had been toppled, after Al-Qaeda had been dispersed, uh, then I think that would have been a successful operation. It's, it's unbelievable that here we are 20 years later and the Americans until yesterday were still there trying to build this nation. And the, the key fact is we're all shocked at how fast uh, the regime in Kabul fell over. I always thought it would fall over. I never had hoped that it would succeed, but even I was surprised by, by the complete capitu capitulation. But you do have to ask yourself this. If the government was that weak, if the Afghan military was that weak, after 20 years of billions of dollars of investment, of Americans fighting and dying with Australians and Canadians and others, to try and retard, degrade, um, defeat the Taliban insurgency and for the Afghan government to fall over and the Taliban to be as strong, if not stronger, than, than the day we first went in and bombed the crap out of them in late 2001. There are absolutely no grounds to think another 20 years, another 40 years, another 100 years would make a difference. And it goes back to my point that this kind of nation building intervention does not work. And yet it can, it does create enormous amount of suffering. And again, that's not a nice position to have. It's not a nice reality to confront. But think of it like this at the individual personal level, we often have to confront and accept difficult news. If your marriage breaks down, that is, that is a very hard truth to accept, but it is something you have to confront and accept. If your doctor tells you you have three months to live, you have a malignant tumor in your brain and you're going to die and there's nothing we can do. Well, you can live in denial for three months, but ultimately you're going to die and your friends and family have to come to terms with that truth. Now, for some reason, we struggle to comprehend the fact that bad things happen in, in the international arena. There are some things we just can't do anything about, but we have to. My, my hope and prayer actually is that this once and for all kills the ridiculous deluded thinking in, in the Washington foreign policy circle that the American military can just go in and intervene anywhere and set up new regimes. Now, it's true that the American military can go anywhere. They're bloody awesome. They are the greatest military power that humanity has ever known. And don't believe what they tell you about the Chinese military. It's, it's catching the American military, but the American military power is supreme. Like no other country actually comes particularly close. And this is why there is this constant policy temptation in Washington because if a president says, look, what are my options in Timbuktu? Well, an American general, no matter what their political persuasion or background is, will always be able to come up with a plan because at that military point of view, there's virtually no army they can't defeat. But of course, what's the point in going and defeating a country? We saw this in Iraq. The Americans went in. You can watch YouTube videos in exquisite detail about the way they executed that operation and i know we're talking about death and destruction there is something beautiful about the 
unbelievable planning and logistic capacity of the American nation. This reflects all of the greatest virtues of America. This is an entrepreneurial society, a can-do society, where most uh, people see an insurmountable mountain. The Americans just see a hill that they're going to roll over. And to go in and destroy the Iraqi army in a matter of a month was an extraordinary undertaking. The complexity of their operation was amazing. But what is the point in going in to some country and defeating its army? Once you've defeated the army, you have a security problem and you're now responsible for security. And just think about it like this. Imagine Saddam Hussein or Mullah Omar, who was the original leader, founder of the Taliban, came, they convened a meeting of their leadership and they sat down and said, look, we really think it would be a good idea to invade the United States. And what we're going to do is get rid of this stupid, dysfunctional democracy. We're going to disband all of the political parties, make them illegal. We're going to implement Sharia law everywhere. And we're going to create an Islamic emirate where an Islamic scholar is going to be the, the leader of the nation. Um, there'll be no elections. There'll just be a sort of appointed Islamic scholars. I mean, how do you think the American people are going to react? They're going to see these people as nasty invaders that they want to kill and get rid of. Well, what do you think anyone's going to think of American and Australian and Canadian and German and French troops whenever they turn up in some other country? It's a very difficult sell to go in, destroy the army, which is populated by the sons, brothers, fathers of the local people, and then say, well, look, I know we just killed 100,000 of your people, 150,000 of your people, but we're here to build some great democracy and trust us. You're going to be better off for it in the long run. Look, I'm at risk of uh, flogging the proverbial dead horse here. My views are obviously very strong. But just to sum up, um, we have to be realistic about the international scene. We have to face the hard truth that we cannot solve every single problem. We cannot alleviate the suffering of every single individual. And that suffering is overwhelming. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Um, it's almost too hard to even think about. And I get that. But we have to be very, very careful if we're going to talk about embarking on military interventions when that is talking about asking our own sons and fathers to kill people and to be killed and to kill a lot of foreign people, the very people whose suffering purportedly uh, provides the very basis for the intervention in itself. If there are low prospects of success, it's actually morally outrageous to embark on the mission. And my contention is that this kind of intervention, certainly the full-scale invasion and reconstruction exercise virtually never works and therefore shouldn't be undertaken.